Good evening. You are tuned into another episode of Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of the month from 8 to 8.30 p.m. If you ever miss our show live, you can always check us out on cgsw.com. This episode of Writer's Block features an interview with Alicia Elliott, followed by a fun call-in poetry segment, and followed by a short story reading by Kayla Rutledge. This is also going to be my last episode of Writer's Block for a while, so I'm going to be featuring a short poem I wrote as well. If you're interested in volunteering with our show to do some interviews with writers, drop us a line at cgsw.writers at gmail.com. Keep that dial locked to 90.9 FM, and let's get started. Hi, welcome. My name is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block. Today, I'm speaking with Alicia Elliott about her new book, And Then She Fell. Welcome, Alicia. Thanks so much for having me. And I guess, how did this project start for you? Well, it started when I was in my undergraduate of creative writing. I was um, a, like a young um, mother at that time. I had had my son when I was 18. And so I was uh, with a whole bunch of, uh, like in university with a whole bunch of other, you know, teenagers, basically. And um, it was so, it was very alienating um, because they're all obviously like in, you know, the prime of their lives. They're hanging out and having fun and all of this stuff. And I had to, you know, I had my son. So I had to be back in my dorm room pumping breast milk every four hours so that I could bring that home to him. And so it was very, um, very alienating. And I felt like, you know, I didn't, it felt like a lot of the things about motherhood that we really, we don't really talk about. <laughs> and, and like the, that alienation, that, um, that feeling of, everything being on you to take care of the baby and and you not necessarily having that like intrinsic knowledge, you know, it's not like you give birth to the baby and all of a sudden, you know, there's like everything is implanted into your head of what you have to do and how to do everything perfectly. And so it's very, it's very difficult. Um, and so from there, it kind of, um, the story I wanted to write was kind of about that, it really in embracing that uncertainty and and those feelings of of inadequacy as we're trying to be like these perfect mothers and so that's kind of where it started and then it kind of like spiraled from there it kept getting longer and longer so you reference some disney characters in the book but then uh you don't often hear that uh, happily after after all part the one that happens after the story ends so coming to terms with uh what happens after the marriage or oh yeah basically yeah like um you know uh the i was talking about you know um the the real story of of Pocahontas in the in the book and uh you know she was known to her people as Matuaka and so that whole concept of like a happily ever after um that really was pushed by Disney and this whole and this whole idea too of like even the romance between Matuaka and John Smith, it was all a lie. Just like this whole, uh, you know, this whole idea of, oh, you get married and then everything is fine. Like, there's no way that anything, anyone's life is like, okay, well, I hit the happiness point and now I'm just on cruise control through happiness just the rest of the time. No, that's not realistic. We all have um, things that come up. We all have things that we have to encounter and deal with. And so, you know, I I very much wanted to kind of look at that and say, you know, life is about these 
yes, these good times, but we also can't be unrealistic and assume that there's never going to be difficult times that we have to weather. And when we're in those difficult times, it's so hard to see that there's, you know, even another side to that, you know, you're, you're so deep in it, you can't see the possibility. And that's really what I wanted to kind of write this for was to remind, you know, people that in in the same way I needed to be reminded um, at various points in my life, that there is another side, even when you feel like you have no concept of how to get out of the, the dark, difficult situations that you can. What is your writing process? And uh, what do you do when you reach those uh, emotional or psychological breakthroughs in your book? Like the mom- moments when you had to uh, confront the, the uh, difficulties uh, in life? Oh, yeah. Um, I, trend, I try to generally write um, towards something. And so, you know, um, I generally start with these kinds of questions of like, how is this character going to come to terms with, you know, the obstacles that are in her way? What are the conflicts that she has to really reckon with? And, you know, um, for my protagonist, Alice, she's, yes, she's dealing with the difficulties of motherhood, but she's also dealing with the difficulties of, you know, being an Indigenous woman in a time and place where it's often very dangerous to be an Indigenous woman, and especially an Indigenous mother. Um, you know, we, and so I, I really wanted to kind of really reckon with that and what that entailed and how so often one thing happens and all of a sudden our lives become like these psychological horror movies where we're having to engage with these things that these systems and these people who are replicating these systems that are targeting us and targeting our children and all of this. And and we're all meant to feel at the whole time, like that's not really what's happening. And so it's like this, this incredible gaslighting that's happening where, you know, this is happening, but because there's a polite face on the people who are doing it or they're being passive aggressive instead of outwardly aggressive, they have that plausible deniability. And so they're, you know, we're meant to feel like we're crazy when this is something that's actually happening. And so we still see that today with like residential school denialism and everything. And so, you know, really trying to find the way to push through all of that and say, you know what, our ancestors were through this and worse. And they still and they still pushed and they still made sure we were here. And so we have to do that for the next generations. That was really kind of what I was like, you know, writing towards and trying to um, trying to get to. And so that like having that emotional, that knowledge of that emotional journey really pushed me to be able to to write what I had to write and to get there. Uh, what was the difference in writing uh, a mind spread over the ground versus and then she fell, which is a fictional story? Well, a mind spread on the ground obviously was nonfiction. And so I wrote all of that with um, the knowledge that I was going to be drawing from like my own life in, in various places and then using that as a way to kind of um, almost open up sideways into discussing bigger issues. Um, whereas this, um, was, you know, there may be like parts emotionally that are drawn from my life or, or experiences or insights, obviously that I I've had, but it's, 
it's a work of fiction. And so I'm able to, in that way, make sure that Alice, who is suffering from, you know, mental health issues as well, to make sure that she has a different experience than the one I had when I had similar mental health issues. So I, in that way, I'm able to kind of, because of it, because it's fiction, I don't have to worry about what actually happened or whether it's, you know, realistic that her family would actually support her through this when so many people who have mental health issues, like the kind of Alice is dealing with their families aren't as supportive. And so I, I wanted to, but I wanted to write that because I felt like it could you know, it was sometimes that that's what we need to read is that that's a possibility. And when we create that possibility through fiction, then it can inspire hopefully other people to be like, you know what, if someone in my family is dealing with that, I don't want to be the person who is going to make it harder for them. I want to be the person who's going to help them like Alice's family did. And hopefully, you know, by writing that into creation, you know, maybe art will imitate or will, will inspire life. Uh, throughout the story, uh, Alice is dealing with her mental health issue, as well as um, trying to be all these things, a mother, as well as writing a book herself. And so uh, what is the sort of balance she is trying to achieve in this predicament that she is in? I think it's a, that's like a question that, you know, all of us have to answer in different ways, right? Even those of us who aren't parents, although, especially when we're parents, we have that other we have to consider our children because if we don't, no one else will. But, you know, that's kind of the problem with with modern life in a lot of senses is that we have to balance all of these things alone in ways that we didn't have to back, you know, when we used to all live communally. It used to be, this is your responsibility. But, you know, like my people, the Haudenosaunee, when we would, we would live in longhouses with our clan. And so, yes, it would be people's responsibility to go and you know, farm the food and make the food and all of that stuff. But also we would all be helping one another by watching each other's kids. And we would be, you know, if someone's sick, we would be taking care of them. They wouldn't be expected to, you know, push through and and clock into their nine to five job and then come home and make all of the food themselves for all of the family and do all of these things. Right. So like the, the way that we live now is it's so hard to, to do all of these things individually. And I think all of us are really dealing with that now um, and, and facing down how, how difficult this modern life, this modern isolated life where we all live in apartments by ourselves or just with our families and are, are responsible for everything ourselves with no help from anyone, not even the government that we are empowering to, you know, be our leaders. They, they don't, they're not doing anything to care for us. We saw that throughout COVID that they didn't, you know, they made us pay back loans. They made us, you know, do all of these things that, that made it very clear, like continue going to work and, and they didn't try and help people who were homeless. In fact, you know, sent cities to clear out homeless encampments during pandemic. These are all ways that like the government is saying, you know, you're definitely on your own. And so, you know, it's hard to do all of that. And Alice is definitely, feeling the strain of that as a new mother who's isolated. But I think that's something that's so relatable to all of us. I've seen some festival dates that you will be at. And uh, is that continuing on with this new book? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be doing different places, um, going to be different places as a result of the book. And hopefully getting to, you know, see some people and meet some people, read and talk about the book. And yeah, I'm excited. Uh, Thanks very much for your time today. 
Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong, and that was my interview with Alicia Elliott for her new book, And Then She Fell. It's a look at native life, motherhood, and mental health that follows a young Mohawk woman who discovers what the picture-perfect life means for her. Alicia Elliott is a Mohawk writer. She has written for the Global Mail, CBC, and Hazlitt, and many other publications. An essayist and short story writer, her first book, A Mind Spread Out on the Ground, was a non-fiction title that was a national bestseller in Canada. And then she felt his her debut novel. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. That was our interview with Alicia Elliott and Jenny Kwong. Coming up next, we have our call-in poetry bit. Stay tuned. Good evening, everybody. Tonight on Writer's Block, we're going to do a special bit on poetry. For a while, we have been putting out a message for listeners to call in. We are looking for some poets that are inspiring and relevant to social issues today. If anyone wants to give us a call about a local writer or a new poet, now would be the time. Hi, this is Writer's Block. Hi, um, I'm calling in to discuss a favorite poet of mine. Oh, a favorite poet of yours. Awesome. Well, thank you for calling in. I'm so excited that we have a caller tonight. That's great. Well, I thought I'd call in because I recently found out about this poet I recently got into. I don't think a lot of people have heard of him because he goes by a pen name, but his work is really cool. He's been translated a lot into many languages, and I'm pretty sure he's actually a doctor as well. Um, He's quite academic. Uh, he writes in a lot of, he, he writes in more genres than just poetry. I'm pretty sure he's been published uh, in Vanity Fair. Oh, Vanity Fair. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. His work has a lot to do with social and environmental issues, uh, but I think he counts more as a surrealist. He also includes a lot of visual images alongside his writing to highlight the themes of his work. I it, I think it's truly art nouveau. He uses uh, anapestic tetrameter a lot. Anapestic tetrameter? Wow, that sounds like really complex. I don't know if I've heard of this person. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is very complex. Uh, a lot of his work is hard to digest. Uh, I think it's the historical implications behind his writing really show in the language. He's quite educated on the world wars as well as the Cold War. Sometimes his tone is trivial, but it really works to emphasize his satirical in- interpretation of the world around him. I thought I'd call in about this one poem I really enjoy. Uh, This one has a lot to do with the politics of negation. It also utilizes a lot of verdant imagery, particularly with wildlife, and his shifting between first and second person often creates literary tension between the reader and the speaker of the poem. But this poem has a unique but recognizable linguistic structure. He definitely has his own style. Wow, this sounds this sounds really great. Well, thanks for calling in. Did you did you want to read a poem of his maybe or Yeah, sure. If that's okay. Yeah, that's can, great with uh, us for sure. Go ahead. <clears throat> I think it's kind of cool, so I'll just read it off here. I am Sam. I am Sam. Sam I am. That Sam I am 
that Sam I am. I do not like that Sam I am. Would you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Weird. This is, I feel like I've almost heard this before. It's almost like literary deja vu or something. Okay, well, here's another good one I really like. This one has a lot of surreal imagery, and I think I'll get my son to read it because this is also his favorite poem. Kirby? All right. Uh, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, black fish, blue fish, old fish, new fish. This one has a little car. This one has a little star. Say what a lot of fish there are. Hold on a second. I... I feel like I recognize this. I think I know who this is. Yeah, yeah. I just found out about this guy. Uh, I, I bought some of his books in a garage sale. And his name is Theodore Geisel. But I guess he actually goes by the name Dr. Seuss. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> <I love> that. <laughs> There aren't many writers out there as well known to adults and children alike as Dr. Seuss. While he is not necessarily a real doctor, he did originally pursue a doctor of philosophy in English literature. He later dropped out to pursue his passion of illustration, but he received an honorary doctorate of human letters from Dartmouth. Dr. Seuss originally came up with his nickname during his early years in college. After he had been banned from participating in writing and editing for the Dartmouth Humor magazine for drinking gin in his room during Prohibition, he started working with the magazine covertly under the pseudonym Dr. Seuss, a pen name he continued to use for the rest of his career. The nickname was originally pronounced Soyce or Zoice, but Seuss changed the pronunciation to a more recognizable one used today because it sounds more childlike, similar to Mother Goose. While Seuss is best known for his children's books, he was also a humor cartoonist, created and designed advertisements, and, during World War II, illustrated political cartoons. According to Seuss's own recollections, his first attempt at a children's book got rejected by over 20 publishers. When he was walking home on Madison Avenue in New York, with the intention of destroying the manuscript, an old colleague from Dartmouth changed his life by running into him and suggesting that he help him publish the manuscript. Dr. Seuss Enterprises recalled this book over 80 years later in 2021 for the imagery they deemed hurtful and wrong, sparking debate in the wider literary community over censorship. Despite certain controversies, Dr. Seuss's work has a timeless quality and his books are still being read to children today, 
He passed away in 1991. However, he is still one of the world's most recognizable literary figures. You are tuned into another episode of Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of the month every month from 8 to 8.30 p.m. If you missed the beginning of this episode, you can always check it out later on cgsw.com. If you would like to get involved with our show, drop us a line at cgsw.writers at gmail.com. That last segment was a fun call-in poetry segment featuring guests Kevin Kappas and Kirby Kappas. Coming up next, we have a short story reading by Kayla Rutledge. Stay tuned! The pool had been dry for years, ever since the landlord decided it wasn't worth the maintenance. The revolving group of college boys that lived in the house always went down to the beach on good weather days anyways, burning their shoulders and watching the sun sparkle off the water and their white, solid teeth. Truth be told, the landlord was tired of the house. He was tired of the boys calling from their large bedrooms that they paid too little for, fixing the messes they created day in and day out, fielding noise complaints from the neighbors, He let the salt and chlorine dry in long, wispy streaks on the concrete, and the pool sunk deeper and deeper into the backyard. The college boys mostly ignored it. Sometimes they put lawn chairs in the empty hole and sat all day, falling into a swollen, dreamless sleep in the sky-blue womb. In October, a hurricane blew in, and the college boys took a trip to the mountains for a week, leaving the pool to shudder and howl all alone in the rain, sinking deeper into the soggy ground like a sore. The storm filled the pool with everything wanted by no one. Battered palm leaves and broken deck chairs, dead birds and roofing tiles. Then it turned on its heel and left. The week after the hurricane, the floodwaters shrank back into the sea, The college boys' SUVs came careening back into the driveway, and the pool smoked and broiled in the beaming sunlight. The leader of the college boys called the landlord. The landlord promised that he was coming soon and never came, and the debris coagulated into a sludgy, sooty potion that stank all through the fall. The leader of the college boys, who lived in the room overlooking the backyard, drew his curtains, and tried his best to ignore the pool. It was his senior year, and everyone agreed he had a very bright future. He was going to propose to his girlfriend in February. By November, the smell of the pool had begun to invade the house. Something at the bottom was rotting, and the boys all agreed they should call the landlord again, but they didn't. The temperature dropped, and still the house smelled like mildew and bathwater, The leader of the boys had exams to think about and had gotten used to keeping his curtains closed. 
He bought his girlfriend an expensive purse for Christmas. He stopped worrying about the pool. He had other things to be responsible for. On New Year's Eve, the boys threw a party on their back porch and all of their friends came over to sing and toast to the new year, to the leader of the boys, to his impending engagement, to everything that made them young and invincible. The pool hissed in the moonlight, blurring the reflection of the party into something unrecognizable. The boys dared the smallest of the bunch to jump into the pool. He looked nervously over the balcony at the water, which stunk of bacteria, glinted metallic under the surface, hinting at something that could snuff out his fearsome life. He closed his eyes and plugged his nose. He thought about his mother. The leader of the boys stopped him. He waved a hand at the others, grinned, shouted at the moon. His whole life stood in front of him like something to be grasped. In February, the leader of the college boys proposed to his girlfriend. There were string lights and a string quartet. The ring could cut your heart out. He was very proud of himself. His girlfriend had eyes like stone, shrugged and said, no, thank you. She wanted something more, something more than the boy and his bright future. He couldn't imagine what. The leader of the college boys went home. He told the friends waiting for the surprise party to go home. He went out to sit on his deck alone. The sun was setting hot and orange over the landscape. The pool stunk like cabbage. He was struck by a sudden desire to jump in, to immerse himself in the syrupy darkness of it. He knew that he would sink like a stone until he rested at the bottom. There would be a small pocket of air there. Among all those transient, discarded things, he would glow and glow. He would be the brightest thing in the world. For those who just tuned in, you are listening to an episode of Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. This episode of Writer's Block featured a fun poetry segment, a short story reading by Kayla Rutledge, and an interview between Jenny Kwong and Alicia Elliott. Because this is my last episode for a little while, I thought it would be fun to end on a little poetry reading by myself as I've been doing a lot of travel writing since coming back from Europe. And so to end this episode of Writer's Block, I'll be doing a little reading here. I'd just like to say thank you for everyone who's tuned into the program over the last two years. It's been a really fun time and I've gotten to talk to a lot of very interesting people that I wouldn't have talked to otherwise. The year hasn't gone as planned, but it's still been a lot of fun. So thank you again for tuning in. And this is Maddie Robinson, signing out. Thanks guys. So I went traveling earlier this year and I went across the globe and I saw a lot of really interesting things. But one of the things that stood out to me is that I went to a place that was very, very old and had a lot of very old structures. And even though there were a couple of other people there, 
I felt like I was having a really unique experience and what I was feeling on the inside was a bit different than what everyone else was seeing. So that's what this following poem is about. Meteora. Flower dynamite splint rocks. It was Elysium without name. Faces weeping into shadow, faces melting into mountain. Wildflowers flickering as dream. Somewhere, bells. Striations of time, it was quiet as vacuum. There was no language and no reason to speak. Snowing sunlight formation invisible weightless stairway. Two butterflies mirror each other as if on kite strings. Mountain raised on magician hands out of thin slits of reality. What is mountain? Flowers shoot white star trails. What isn't mountain? Something I couldn't put my finger on. It is barely an object. Cosmosis, flooding history. Skulls open eyes, alien blessing. You pull away and the mountain follows. Mountain with faces, none of them speaking, waiting for you to speak. I touched the mountain. It was ocean, church organ without sound. Another planet, another sky, another martyred heart without belief.